following conversation is with Matt Lampert. Matt Lampert is the Director of Research at Socionomics. Socionomics is basically a organization and theory and model for understanding how social mood influences the character of social norms and its effect on the society and our economy at large. Social mood being defined as people's general leanings towards optimism or pessimism. And so it has a lot of underpinnings in how understanding psychology, human behavior, sociology interacts with our economy, interacts with people's decision-making within society, and its practical implications being the stock market, investing. When do you make intelligent, how do you make intelligent decisions to invest, when to, when not to? Look, taking a big zoom out upon history and seeing and observing the trends upon society, what's that taught us? What can that teach us now and for the future to develop this operating system on how to financially or make intelligent financial investments among what appears to be a very intimidating machine being the economy, something a lot of people don't really think about the stock market, the economy, but we all play the game. We're all, we're all in it, whether we realize it or not. Okay, and so this conversation with Matt shed so much light, interesting, engaging information. I did not expect this conversation to be um, as interesting to me as it was. Uh, we really went above and beyond into a whole range of topics in um, that Matt's never talked about to this length before and that I've never talked about to this length before on the stock market and the economy and explaining what we can learn and how to explain the tumultuous ups and downs of 2020, but beyond and zooming out over the last hundred years and hundreds of years before that to what we can learn about how to make accurate decision makings in this market today and how our psychology, how our brain, our decision making influences the economy and stock market at large and how we can best take advantage to make uh, intelligent decisions that will create a prosperous future for the individual. This may sound not very practical to some of you, but in fact, just the way that I go with these conversations, there's a lot you can actually pull from it to develop your own operating system to take action on when is the right time to invest? When is the right time to make a risky decision? And when the everybody is going in one direction, how do you know when is the time to go the opposite to what is common? And so I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. This was really interesting to me, really engaging to me. And if you're interested in money, finance, the economy, the stock market, how to make better decisions in your life when in areas of high risk, you should enjoy thoroughly this conversation with Matt Lampert. You operate within a field and called socioeconomics, which I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. And while I'm going to do an introduction at the start to give people a, a little background, um, I still want to hear it from your words because we have a wide variety of people who listen to this and who may not understand it. Could you give a primer on what socioeconomic is, economics is and why you think it's applicable for the average 
person to understand. Everybody from the 20-year-old studying to the middle-aged elderly person who's at the tail end of their career or profession. Sure, that's a great place to start, Alexander. And we can make a distinction, and it's an important one, between socioeconomics and socionomics. Okay. So I'm in the latter field. Socioeconomics is a completely different discipline, uh, but people confuse them all the time. So all let's right. start by clearing that up right off the bat. My bad. Socioeconomics is basically about the intersection of economics and soci uh, sociology. So a socioeconomist might ask a question like, how does having a college degree impact someone's probable lifetime earnings? Or how does growing up in a community in poverty uh, impact the likelihood that an individual would attain college, uh, a college degree? Something like that. So we're looking at this intersection between uh, economic achievement, economic variables, and social status, those sorts of questions. Socionomics, what we do is completely different. What we do in socionomics is we study the relationship between social mood and social events. That's what we're all about. And when people typically think about the relationship between social mood and social events, what we tend to think is that events affect our mood. So you'll read headlines like some earnings reports came out that were worse than expected and that made the stock market go down. Uh, the idea being, hey, there's some negative news that made traders more pessimistic and so they set the market, market prices lower. Uh, or a politician, maybe a leader, gives some sort of rousing, encouraging address and the conventional view is that that might make society more optimistic. What we do in socionomics is we turn that causality on its head. And instead of looking at how the events impact the mood, we say, no, it's actually the other way around. It's social mood that shapes the tenor and character of social events, because those events have to come from somewhere. And they come from people, people who have feelings. And so if you know how people are feeling, then you have a way to anticipate the kinds of behaviors and the kinds of actions that they're going to do. And the reason that that's important at the social level is because it creates an opportunity for forecasting. So let's just take one example. So the conventional view would be that recessions make business people cautious. But where did the recession come from? Mm. Well, they came from business people being cautious in the first place, right? They came from consumers being more cautious, more. Uh, financially conservative in their spending in the first place. So the psychology comes first. And so by starting with that psychology, let's say you had a way to recognize if society was becoming more pessimistic or more cautious. Well, now suddenly you have a very useful tool to anticipate something like an economic recession. Okay. And so this is, uh, so this is useful. This is powerful stuff. And no matter your station in life, what kind of career you're in, you can use an understanding of the social mood trend to calibrate things like your messaging, the kinds of products and services that might resonate with society at a particular juncture. Uh, you can plan for phases, maybe when recessions or hard times in the market are more probable. 
And it, it gives you a strong edge because you'll be prepared for dramatic changes that people who are not paying attention to the social mood trend, which is going to be the vast majority of your competitors. Right. They won't be able to see these, these things coming, but you will. And I think that's where it becomes a very valuable tool and philosophy to consider because we all operate within this system, right? This, whether we're aware of it or not, and understanding human behavior, psychology, social norms, and their interrelated influences of the economy and each other is extremely valuable. And so that makes sense from a theory perspective. A couple places we can go, but, you know, what do you do with that then? Like, what ha- what's some main learnings that you've had or that people can apply um, in their day-to-day business from socionomics? Sure, let's just take maybe an example or two and think it through from a socionomic perspective. So let's say that we run an automobile company, or maybe we're uh, a PR firm and a major car manufacturer has approached us and they said, hey, we've got a new car coming out. We want you to design the ad campaign. Well, the car's already been designed. It's already been built. We just need to figure out how to promote it. But one of the things that a colleague of mine, Mark Alashevsky, found was that society's car color preference changes with the social mood trend. And social mood is fairly positive. You see brighter colors. You also see silver becomes popular uh, because that vibrancy of the mood is reflected in the vibrancy of the kinds of cars, the car colors that people want to drive. But when social mood is more pessimistic, when it's more negative, then earth tone colors, darker colors, more drab colors become popular in cars. So if we're designing this ad campaign and let's say we identify that social mood is quite negative, well, we might wanna put a green one on the billboard, maybe a beige one in the commercial, make sure we've got some tan ones in the showrooms at the dealership because those colors are going to be more likely to resonate with our audience. And if we would have been brought in earlier in the process, we could have helped this company design the kind of car. We know that higher horsepower cars, larger cars, bigger cars, more uh, faster cars are more popular in periods of positively trending social. Mm-hmm. And we know the opposite when social mood is trending negatively. People prefer smaller cars, less powerful engines, uh, more economical rides. If you think back to the bear market of the 1970s and you had the Gremlin and the Vega and all these cars that today are kind of like punchlines but back then they did pretty well Um, versus say the bull market of the 1990s when you had the uh, SUV craze that uh, that became very popular at least here in the states you also had a return of sports cars more recently we've even seen a return of muscle cars uh, becoming popular so that's, that's one industry that could benefit substantially from this perspective, but, but we could do any number of them. Uh, let's, let's, do, uh, let's do movies. One of the things that we found is that when social mood is trending positively, the kinds of movies that tend to be popular are more upbeat, family-friendly kinds of fare. Uh, Disney is one classic positive mood brand. You can think back to the Disney renaissance in the 1990s that was a positive mood period or the disney golden age in the 1950s and 60s a positive mood period but in negative mood periods disney tends to struggle Uh, and it's another genre that tends to do quite well in those phases and that would be horror movies so if you're someone in the 
uh, in the movie business, maybe you work in Hollywood, maybe you're in charge of green lighting productions, or maybe you're a director and you want to make something that is more likely to resonate with the public, then you can diagnose the social mood trend and calibrate the kinds of the kind of film that you might want to make based on that decision. You can do the same thing with pop music. You can do the same thing with general advertising messaging. You can do it with the kinds of political messages that tend to resonate with the public at one time or another. It really starts to frame your understanding of history in a way that as long as you know roughly where you are in that social mood phase, you've got a pretty good chance to capitalize on opportunities that would be in some cases difficult to even recognize with any other perspective. But the real key here, Alexander, is that we've got to have a way to measure social mood so we can track it in real time. And we think we've got a pretty good way to do that. Well, well how do you do that? Yeah, well, there's all sorts of ways that people have proposed that you can measure mood. And we think a lot of these are really interesting. So some people say you should use surveys. There's some value in that. Some people like to look at consumer confidence or economic confidence indicators. There's some interesting work going on using social media and the kinds of things that people tweet about, for example, as a mood indicator. But we find that the absolute best one to use is the stock market. And the reason for that, there's actually several reasons. One is that the stock market is a place where people have been instantaneously reflecting their changes in optimism and pessimism for generations. We've got stock market data going back hundreds of years, so we can back test the theory. But we also have real-time updates. It's whenever the market's open, every tick, we get a new data point. So it's this lovely mix of a fairly instantaneous indicator of social optimism and pessimism with the robust historical data and highly granular real-time updates that makes it attractive. And one of the most interesting things about the stock market is not only does it do all of those things, and not only do we have stock market data in countries all over the world, not only is the data publicly available free to everybody on their smartphone, those are all great things about the indicator. But one especially powerful aspect of the stock market is that people can manifest, they can execute, their decisions quickly. So if someone's feeling more confident, more optimistic, and they express that more positive mood by say, bidding up the price of a stock, they're done in a few moments, a few clicks of a mouse, maybe a call to a broker, and they're done and that change shows up in the data. Whereas if someone else at exactly the same time is becoming more confident, more positive, more optimistic, but they choose to express that positivity by say going out and opening a business. Well, that decision is going to take so much longer to execute. They might have to get a business license, hire some staff, come up with a product or service. And by the time that business is up and running and contributing to a data series like economic growth, it might be months or even a year after the person initially took that first step to move forward. And that's one reason in our view that the stock market is an outstanding leading economic indicator. It's because these changes in mood can show up there quickly. We see them in the data and then they take longer to show up in some of these slower moving data series. But it turns out the stock market is not only an excellent economic indicator, it's an excellent indicator for trends in popular culture, trends in business, trends in politics and broader society as well. Do you find that businesses 
opening while it, it can, do you find new like entrepreneurship uh new businesses opening within a society or state correlates and lags behind the stock market um how should i say disposition the stock market direction what we've looked at in that area, Alexander, is we've done a lot of work on the relationship between the stock market and GDP. So if you think about economic growth as being this data series that rolls so many things into it, it's people opening businesses, it's people closing businesses, it's business owners expanding their operations, it's consumers expanding their spending and decreasing their spending. There's so many there's so many behaviors that contribute to a data series like GDP. And we've studied this going back more than a hundred years. And what we found is that there is a significant correlation between the stock market, changes in the stock market and changes in GDP, which is interesting. But what we've found as well is that you can also use the stock market to forecast GDP. It's a leading indicator. But if you try to go the other way around, if you try to use, say, the annual change in GDP to then predict the annual GDP, uh, the annual change in the stock market, the relationship breaks down and there's not a significant relationship there. And that's one indicator to us, that's one data point that suggests that these trends in social mood are unidirectional. There's no feedback loop between events and the broader change in social mood. We think basically social mood marches to the beat of its own drum. People become more optimistic or more pessimistic. They engage in behaviors consistent with that change toward optimism or that change toward pessimism. And the causality goes outward from there. Okay. So you, would it be accurate to say you use the stock market to recognize, detect uh, the severity of pessimism and optimism in a, in a society? That's your proxy. That's exactly right. If you see the stock market going up, going higher, that's an indication that social mood in that country is becoming more positive, more optimistic, and the opposite if you see the market going down. Okay, then how do we reconcile this year? Quite anomaly, but maybe you guys have read between the lines enough to say, well, it makes sense. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it is an outlier and you're still putting the pieces together. How do you analyze 2020 and explain, you know, the ups and downs? You know, people thought one thing would happen, that we would get a crash. We would, this would all be like done, right? But it's still staying high in a lot of areas. What do you make of that? 2020 has been such an interesting year to live through. I don't know many people who are going to look back on this year fondly, but as an analyst, it provides a lot of food for thought and a lot of interesting changes that happen very quickly. And that's one reason why just last week on the Elliott Wave Facebook page, we did a webinar called, what the heck is going on with 2020? Because this is a question on your mind, it's on a lot of people's minds, so let's get into it. So it all starts, remember, from this idea that the stock market is a fairly swift indicator of social mood. So we would expect the stock market to be a leading indicator. Now, that's completely different from what a typical economist would think when they analyze 2020. 2020 doesn't make any sense from a typical orthodox economics point of view, right? You have this huge pandemic, 
And while the pandemic was just getting dreadful, the stock market was rallying. We saw some historically bad unemployment figures here in the States and the stock market was rallying. This doesn't make any sense to a conventional economist, but it makes all the sense of the world to a sociologist. To us, and I'll explain why. So we've studied the history of epidemic disease going all the way back to cholera epidemics in the 1800s in London. And what we find, have found consistently is that epidemics tend to emerge in countries where social mood has been quite negative, when it's been quite depressed. So using our proxy of the stock market, we would expect to see epidemics emerge in countries who have had either swift and or long-term declines in their stock indexes preceding the outbreak of the epidemic. This is exactly what you see if you study cholera in London. It's exactly what you see if you look at all of the major epidemics of the 20th century. And so when we look at COVID-19, the question is where did it emerge and what was that country's stock index doing prior to the emergence of the epidemic? And so if you study, say, the Shanghai Composite, a benchmark primary stock index for China, what you find is that China had been in a bear market, a period of negatively trending social mood, a period of negatively trending stock prices for more than a dozen years before the outbreak of the epidemic. It wasn't the case that the epidemic happened and then their stock market went down. Their stock market had been going, on, going down for more than a dozen years. And then they had an epidemic emerged there, highly consistent with what we've seen basically all over the world for the, the past couple of centuries. Now, of course, we live in a globalized world, and so a disease can break out in one place, and particularly if it's an interconnected global hub, then it can spread, and that's what happened here. But we thought it was very interesting, even in the United States, if you study the Dow Jones Industrial Average, one of our best stock market indexes, the Dow peaked in February, February 12th, and fell precipitously. It was the deepest and swiftest fall from an all-time high on record. And during the worst of the pandemic though, the market had already bottomed and was rallying. And so you, you saw bizarre headlines where analysts were trying to make sense of this. They said, what's going on? Is Wall Street celebrating this pandemic and economy shutting down and people losing their jobs? Well, no, what happened is that the social, this negative social mood trend showed up first in the stock market and then it showed up later in the broader economy. It showed up later in the kinds of decisions that policymakers made about uh, what to do uh, in the face of, of the risks that they perceived and the uncertainty that they were dealing with. Um, but that rally in the market was a signal that uh, things in the economy, things in broader society were likely to improve. And indeed, they did shortly uh, thereafter. Now, uh, yes, there was a wave of civil unrest. That's another lagging indicator of that negative mood trend. But as the market went higher, that civil unrest basically petered out for the most part of the United States. And so with the market remaining elevated, it's one signal to us that, uh, you know, it, it seems like uh, sky should be getting a little bit rosier. Uh, that said, as we saw in February, things in the market can change very quickly. So in socionomics, we don't forecast the market. We don't forecast our own indicator. We just use that indicator to foresee the kinds of other social events that are likely to unfold. I want to make, sh- make sure I, I understand this because when, you know, we were in, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
previously before this, we were in a bull market. Would you say? Yes. Sure. Yeah. And then pandemic, all this stuff happens. Okay. And it causes all this turmoil. And I believe that crash is similar timing to when the World Health Organization announced that it, it was classified um, as a worldwide pandemic. I believe it's pretty similar timing. Um, but during that time, you would, you would probably, the average person would say there's a big air of pessimism, negativity, and general alike feelings to that. Yet, but, but when there's pessimism, if I recall correctly, didn't we talk about how people bid the, the stock markets go down and prices go down? Yet we saw pessimism has pretty much never been higher this year, yet things have increased. That, that's the part that confuses me. Okay, well, let's remember the Dow fell hard from February to late March. And we saw similar falls in many global stock market indexes. Yeah. So if 2020, if you just had increasing markets the whole time, then you would say, yeah, something isn't adding up here. But what happened is that that severe pessimism that you're talking about, and it absolutely was acute, showed up and it showed up in historic proportions yeah. in the stock market from February to late March. Uh, it takes longer for these changes in mood to work their way through the rest of society. So let's say the government decides to shut down businesses or business owners on their own decide to shut down business, their business because this is too, too dangerous, they're too afraid, they're too pessimistic. The knock-on results of doing that take quite a long time to, to play out. You have people who lose their jobs, you have people who maybe they don't get laid off, but they're not working, uh, incomes go down, unemployment goes up. And so you've got all these effects working their way through the broader social system. But What's interesting about the stock market is that as soon as that pessimism starts to alleviate itself, at least on the front end of this chain of causality that we're talking about, it can show that change in mindset can show up quickly in the market. And it does, it's not like a light switch that flips and we go from being universally pessimistic to universally optimistic. Mm. All that happens is that we become just the slightest bit less pessimistic in the early stages of what we call a rising transition. And so in those early stages of the rising transition, and we're talking about for, for months after the low, certainly through June and July even, there's still a tremendous amount of pessimism out there. And, and it's, it, you know, living through it, it's very real. But nevertheless, eventually that pessimism, if the market trend keeps going, indicating that mood's becoming more positive, that pessimism becomes less so, and it gets replaced by an increase in, in optimism, uh, an increase in hopefulness. It doesn't happen overnight, it's a process. But those positive mood manifestations start to become more frequent more intense than those negative mood manifestations. But in those transitional periods, you're absolutely right, toward the bottom and also toward the top, interestingly, you see a window of opportunity for significant positive mood manifestations and negative mood manifestations to happen simultaneously. And when you're living through that, it can be disorienting, it can be confusing. But if you understand where you are in the mood trend, it's exactly what you would expect to see from uh, 
in, in those transitional phases from positive mood to negative mood and then on the other side of the coin from negative back into the positive. I wonder, because I think a lot of people, the average person would still feel, especially America with, with how, you know, I'm in Australia, you know, we we're fortunate in a lot of ways compared to a lot of other countries like yourself um, with just the sheer volume and numbers. But I would, it still seems like there is this big air of just uh, suffering, pain and pessimism among the average person. Right. And so I wonder if you just looked at that, you would see, you would maybe consider that this theory is not as tight because if you just look around you, and maybe it's a bias of some sort, like a negative bias. You look around, you would say that the average person is actually still really pessimistic and really down. They're not working and they're broke and they can, there's the lease is running out and they can't afford this, that, and the other. But within every seed of adversity, there's an opportunity. That's Napoleon Hill. And I wonder, do we see such an uptrend now because the quality of the person, the type of person matters not just the average person meaning only a very small portion of people actually invest in the stock market do we think that we're seeing this big uprise is because that niche that small proportion is flipping to optimism because they recognize the opportunity while the average person is still relatively pessimistic does that at all make sense yeah, well, one of the things that we've noticed is that if you look at economic growth figures, if you look at wages, if you look at the unemployment figures, they're all better now than they were in March. They're all better now than they were around that period of the low. And so you've seen these improvements show up in so many different indicators. But does that necessarily mean that let's say society as a whole is more optimistic today than we were in say March and April. Does that mean that society is overwhelmingly optimistic? Are we dealing in a, with, a, with a, a phase here where we're looking at you know, 90% optimism, 10% pessimism? No, I tend to agree with you. It's, it's a more of a mixed bag. And it can be difficult to remember how scary and how fearful things were back in March, back in April, right. back in May. Yeah. And that's reasons why we like to look at data to see, okay, well, what do the data tell us? And, and, and if you look at economic indicators from March and April, they're dreadful. I mean, you're looking at some, in some cases, particularly in unemployment, historically bad numbers, but those historically bad numbers were followed by historically positive numbers where we saw record number of job losses followed by record number of gains back. So I would agree with you. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're out of the woods. It doesn't mean that this is uh, suddenly the most euphorically uh, optimistic phase in human history. But really, if you zoom out and you look at the, the totality of human history, and I know you're, you're a fan of doing things like that, which is amazing. Uh, life's not so bad. You know, it's, it's really, you know, if you think about the creature comforts that are available to the average person today, yes. I'm living in still, you know, very close, if not at historic levels of prosperity. And it can be easy to, to get uh, you know, kind of bogged down in, in, in our day-to-day -day lives, of course. But I would say overwhelmingly people are, the society as a whole is more optimistic today than they were, uh, say, in the months immediately following the low. 
And if social mood continues to become more positive, then we'll see more of that, at least we're likely to see it. But if, uh, if mood goes the other way, then we may be in for another spell where, where things get quite, quite negative, quite anxious and quite fearful again. So yeah, absolutely. There are some parts of society, uh, some people with different socioeconomic statuses are, are doing better than others. Uh, that's true all the time and it's true now. Um, and sometimes these changes do end up showing up earlier in I think you probably have in mind you higher net worth individuals, those kinds of folks. Uh, but that goes both ways. So if you look at, say, economic inequality, there was historic levels of economic inequality in 1928, 1929. A lot of that, well, by definition, you know, a massive amount of, of, the, of the wealth was uh, owned by very few people. But after the stock market crash, it even things out pretty quickly. And so those kinds of individuals can live by the mood trend and die by the mood trend, at least in terms of their, their net worth. And, uh, and, and so you, you could see a reversal in that trend. In fact, we forecasted a reversal in that trend during the next, uh, the next severe negative mood trend. I think we're gonna see economic inequality level out significantly. Okay, I want to get to that, but um, I just want to touch on like I think I think yes, I think we lose perspective, and I think I, I I that provides clarity because social mood definitely was at its peak low in those months, right? I think also because it was the maximum amount of uncertainty. We mm. didn't really know what this was and what was going on and how severe it was going to be, and in the forthcoming months, we got a lot more clarity. We, we, while restrictions were at a, you know, varied across the world and becoming higher, we got more clarity and comfort and it makes sense. Yeah. We're not as tense as we were in the highest peak of uncertainty. So I think uncertainty and certainty are definitely proxies to the trends that we're seeing here now that I've kind of thought about what you said. Alexander, that's exactly right. Your intuition here is spot on because we have studied indicators of economic uncertainty, feelings of uncertainty, and your intuition that they would wax and wane with the trend in social mood, meaning, again, for us, uh, using our proxy with the trend in the stock market is bang on, exactly what we see in the data. And one of the interesting things about this is that there's a subtle but important distinction between actual uncertainty and feelings of uncertainty. So if social mood is quite positive, people tend to perceive the world as certain and predictable. Now they're just as bad at forecasting social change as they are every other time. Economists are still horrendous at forecasting recessions and forecasting major negative changes. Objectively speaking, the world is no less certain or uncertain at that time, but society perceives it as being certain, perceives it as being predictable because society's imbued with the confidence of the positive social mood. Whereas when mood is quite negative, when social mood is depressed, society can become overwhelmed with feelings of uncertainty. And that's without having a pandemic to deal with. You throw that into the mix and suddenly, oh my gosh, there's this just, uh, just such a salient psychological anchor to plug all or to sort of 
uh, foist those feelings of uncertainty onto. And that can be powerful. You know, these negative mood trends are marked by feelings of a loss of confidence, of a loss of predictability, a loss of routine. And in some sense, that's because that's what negative mood trends are all about. They're all about dramatic social changes, dramatic renegotiations, reformulations of the social status quo. And so you do have a time when the society is in flux, social institutions are in flux, our norms are in flux. Think about just even today, think about how our lives are versus how they would have been a year ago. I mean, my gosh, I can't go see my favorite football team play in their stadium. You know, you know just all sorts of day-to-day uh, changes are coming. You know, we've got the holiday season coming up. What's that going to be? So all of these norms and rules and values and institutions tend to undergo some pretty significant changes during these negative mood periods. And my gosh, just, just throw a spoonful of, I guess it's not sugar, but whatever the opposite of that is over the top of that with, with a pandemic, something that is you know, genuinely scary and frightening and all that stuff. And my gosh, it's, it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough to, to get a feeling of certainty because our world is, was so in flux and, and, and to some degree remains so. And, but that certainty, at least now, seems to be having positive effects on the stock market and general optimism. We're seeing this rise in the market, people reinvesting, seeing opportunity. But just before you, you got what you said, what do you predict the next negative social mood, that big spike down, will affect? Like, what do you guys believe will happen and how we should prepare for it? Wow, that's a huge question and also an important question. So yeah, let's think that through. So we just talked about how these changes in negative social mood lead to basically a fracturing of the status quo. And so the simplest way to answer that question is think of any field, it could be in the political space, could be in the business space, could be popular culture, could be in the philosophical space, think about, just think about whatever the status quo is in any of those fields in terms of the kinds of things that would be considered mainstream, okay? And then just imagine that consensus fracturing and ideas and actors that used to be on the fringes of the discourse suddenly begin to attract more adherence. So in politics, this would be people Wherever, they're, wherever they land in the, in the political space, just more extreme than whatever the status quo is, suddenly begin uh, attracting more followers. Same thing in pop culture. You can have artists who have toiled away in obscurity for years and suddenly they, they find themselves with an audience. So just whatever field you're interested in, just imagine that status quo fracturing. And what happens is that groups then tend to reform toward the extremes in all sorts of directions. And as that negative mood trend reaches an extreme, a new consensus forms somewhere. And we don't know where it's going to be ahead of time. All we can tell you is that there's going to be severe competition and wherever it lands, it's probably going to be farther away from the center than wherever the status quo was before. Then as positive mood takes hold, you can imagine that new normal migrating slowly closer toward the center. So 
that's the big picture. Now, how do you prepare for something like that? Well, one way you prepare for it is you understand a few things. Uh, one thing you understand is that negative mood trends in, involve, by definition, severe declines in the stock market. So if you're someone who has a livelihood tied to that, or you've got a nest egg tied to that, you want to be very mindful about that possibility. But even if that's not you, it's not a, it doesn't mean you should just ignore it because of course, these negative mood trends, as we've talked about, manifest throughout the economy. So you could have recessions, you could have all sorts of tough times in the economy, job losses, higher unemployment, but there are also opportunities that come around in negative social mood trends. And so if you're someone who's prepared for that ahead of time and you understand the sorts of opportunities that come to the fore when social mood turns negative, if you've actually made preparation for that ahead of time, you're going to put yourself in, a, in, such, a, in such an important position because your competitors probably will not have done that, will not have done it as effectively as you if you've really thought it through. So how you prepare for that change in negative mood is really, really hinges on your industry, it hinges on your business, it hinges on your, your station in life. We've talked about a few specific industries. Uh, but if you just understand that you're going to be dealing with an environment of social fear, social anxiety, social pessimism, uh, you know, social depression even. And if you think about the kinds of messages, the kinds of products, the kinds of services that people in that mindset would be more inclined to desire, then you can begin to put some, uh, you know, put some plans together to either offer something that would meet that definition, or at least to, to get out of the way so you don't get trampled by this negative social mood. And sometimes just getting out of the way and staying safe can be super valuable. Absolutely. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that you want to prepare for the impacts of dramatic social mood downturn. Now, one thing you said was kind of reverse engineering the, your goods and services and thinking about how could we solve people's problems in times of emotional turmoil, obviously very specific to the industry, like you said, um, there's probably, I can, you know, the Machiavellian side in me, it could clearly see ways to do it in ways of manipulation, right? Manipulating and taking advantage of people's negative mood. I think that's going to exist through charlatans and hucksters and manipulators, but steering away from that, because who doesn't like to be ethical and moral, um, steering away from that towards, well, what can the average person root their principles in to try and help people and while making a living for themselves in times of turmoil? Um, does anything come to mind principle-wise? Like we talked about colors, which I thought was interesting from a marketing perspective. I mean, I want to talk about specific industry in a second, but do you have any principles that come to mind to how you can think about adjusting and pivoting in those times? Sure. So... About a year, year and a half ago, we put together a presentation called Your Best Bear Market Business Opportunities that addresses exactly this question. And we went through about 20 different industries, but we also talked through some principles and we can fly through those pretty quickly. So let's just start with the budgetary part of this. So if you understand these negative mood trends, people are less willing to spend. 
So for example, when mood's quite positive, you're feeling confident, you're feeling optimistic, you might be willing to go out and take out a loan and buy a snazzy new car. You might be willing to take out a $500,000 loan to purchase a house. You might be willing to take these financial risks because you don't perceive them as risk. We were talking about you know, perceptions of uncertainty and perceptions of risk earlier. Well, in negative social mood periods, all of that changes. And both borrowers and lenders become less willing to make loans. And lenders are also more inclined to call in loans that they have already made. Borrowers are more likely to default on their loans and not be able to make payments. And so if you're someone who can specialize, let's say in debt reorganization, helping people manage their debt, get out of debt and work with them in that area of their lives, that's one area that would see it, we would expect a tremendous amount of increased demand during a negative social mood period. Let's say you're someone who's quite good at fixing things. Well, hey, if people are not so willing to go out and buy a new car, what do they do if their current car breaks down? They're gonna to need to get it fixed. So people in the mechanical trades and the home repair trades, lawnmower repair, you know, those sorts of things. If you have a specialty of helping people to make their durable goods last longer, then that skill set would become important. If you're a manufacturer of goods, recognize that what the consumer in that mindset is looking for, they're not looking for luxury. They're not looking for things that are flashy and exciting. It's about something that's durable and that's going to last. And so, so much of the engineering that's been done, really, I guess you could look back even to the 1990s to now, there's been such a significant movement towards say planned obsolescence where manufacturers design products that are not built to last. And that's part of the sales plan. Hey, let's, let's either have the product break down or let's have at least a perceived obsolescence in the marketplace. People will be more inclined to replace their smartphone if it's not the newest and fanciest thing. Well, that business model completely changes in a negative mood trend because the public's desire completely changes. Suddenly, it's not about having the newest, most luxurious, fanciest. It's about having something that gets the job done, something that suits my needs and suits my budget and that I can depend on will last. And you'll see that we expect not only in technology, you'll see it in the kinds of clothing that people are interested in buying, the kinds of materials. So if you're a manufacturer in that space, you can start to think about, okay, what sorts of suppliers might I need to have um, in my hip pocket so I can pivot in that direction. If you're a designer, it becomes important. And then just understanding that people are issuing debt. So, so much of our contemporary economy is built on debt at the personal level and it's built on debt at the, uh, at the global level and every level in between. And instead of having an expansion in credit, which is what we've been living through, in these negative mood periods, you, you see a contraction in credit and you see a, uh, we would expect to see and have forecasted for many years that you'd see instead of inflation, you'd see a period of deflation. And what that means is that the value of individual units of currency increases, which can be problematic if you have debt. I can explain why that is. Let's say you buy a house for, just make up a number, $200,000, okay? But let's say in a deflationary period, suddenly that house only costs 
$50,000. Okay, so the value of that dollar just exploded. Now, what used to take 200,000 of these dollar units now only takes 50. But if you still owe the 200, then you not only have to pay it back, but you have to pay it back with currency that's more valuable. And so this huge crunch gets put on debtors and it, put, it gets put on creditors as well who are trying to, to get paid back. And so being attuned to that just as a business operator, making sure you don't, you're not taking on huge levels of debt prior to a major downtrend can really save your backside in these negative mood trends and these debt deflations because your competitors are going to have to sell everything that isn't nailed down just to service the debt. They might even go out of business. And if you've kept your finances in order and you have cash, suddenly you can buy up your competitors for pennies on the dollar. Okay. I want to pause here. This is really important because there are a lot of people, banks, I don't know about in America, but banks in Australia, they're lowering their interest rates pretty low. Okay. They are encouraging home buyers loans. They see that people are spending less and they're encouraging these uh, to create credit. And if while the market is in an upturn, we're seeing more optimism, we're seeing more clarity and assuredness, the future is still quite uncertain, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of factors at play. So if someone was to take a loan out now, like many people listening or know probably somebody who did, times are okay now. But I know we're talking theoreticals here and hypotheticals. How do we think about the timing of whether it's a good decision to capitalize on something like a low interest rate loan versus what could be around the corner in the coming years is a massive deflation and even possible deleveraging of an economy. Yeah, so this is the challenge that every business owner has to face or everyone taking out a personal loan has to face. And it's also the challenge, frankly, that these banks are are going to have to face at some point. And one of the things that we saw back in 2005, 2006, 2007 was a similar environment where you had this very interesting situation where, where the lenders were euphorically optimistic, so were the people, so were the borrowers. And so you had, uh, there's a, a type of loan called a ninja loan that became popular in the United States. It stood for no income, no job, no assets. And these people were getting hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in mortgages to purchase homes, to purchase property. That's dangerous. Absolutely remarkable. So. In terms of an individual's decision, you know, those are those are things that's going to come down to an individual's risk tolerance, an yeah. individual's assets. Those are all things that are great to talk about with a financial planner. I'm not a financial planner. I cannot help you at the individual level. But what I can give you is some food for thought, some things to maybe to think through and talk through with your financial planner about your specific situation. If you're someone who does want to be prepared for a debt deflation, it's worth, it's probably worth a conversation with an advisor about how best to do that. What would make sense given the uniqueness of your situation to be prepared for that? And frankly, Alexander, just asking that question puts you ahead of almost everybody else because in these periods when society is, uh, you know, is feeling more confident, confident enough for banks to lend money to people who don't seem to have uh, the, the clearest path forward to paying it back, for example, 
Uh, those folks are not asking that question and just being attuned to the possibility and willing to think through a strategy ahead of time puts you at a tremendous advantage over just about everyone else. Totally. I think that's, that's totally, that's totally reasonable and rational. Have a strategy in place. Not, it's not, it's, I don't think it's a matter of if, but just when, right? When you see that downturn, I think the economy is something that everybody's peripherally aware of, but they don't realize how integral it is to their day-to-day um, livelihood. Uh, and I know it's something I've been becoming a lot more aware of, which is one reason why I wanted to speak to you. Um, so strategy, prepare, okay? That's a very, you know, important philosophical, but often not practiced uh, thing to do. But when do you guys predict based on trends when not, not not trying to be Nostradamus or just like guess, but based on trends and what we've seen this year, when do you predict the next negative social mood? Sure. So one of the things that we do in socionomics, as we've talked about at length, is we use the stock market as a leading social indicator. So the best answer, and it, it may not be the answer that you'd like to have, and I wish I could give you a better one, but the best answer I'm able to give as a socionomist is to watch the stock market as a leading indicator. Mm. And if you were to see a swift decline in the market, it would be a telltale sign that so many other areas of our lives were about to change dramatically, at least as dramatically as they've changed this year, if not more so. Now, one of the other interesting things that we've found with respect to these changes in social mood is that they seem to display a pattern. And we think we know what that pattern is. And it's a pattern that's described by a model of stock market pricing called the Elliott Wave Model. This was a model of pricing that was discovered in 1938 by an American accountant named Ralph Nelson Elliott. And essentially it describes financial market price fluctuations as a fractal. A fractal is a, a particular kind of shape that's uh, similar at, at all scales of observation. In some cases, similarly dissimilar at all scales of observation. And Elliot said, not only is the stock market a fractal, but it's a particular fractal. He identified what that is. He had a model for it. You've sketched out the uh, pattern of these waves in the market that he observed. And one of the, the reason that's so interesting to me as a sociotomist is it because, because what it suggests to us is that if the market has some sort of underlying principle of pattern, then it would indicate that social mood has some sort of underlying pattern to it, that it fluctuates in a way that's identifiable, that's discernible. And so while I'm not an Elliott Wave analyst myself, there are people who do that work and do that analysis and try to identify where a society is within, within that pattern. And I was so interested to read that analysis back in January and February this year because the Elioticians we were looking at were forecasting a, a significant move down. And they were even doing it in late 2019, frankly, before the coronavirus had generated its, uh, its first sniffle 
So looking at the market from an Elliott Wave perspective can help you to see around the corner, uh, but it's always probabilistic. The, 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 uh, yeah. the market forecasting method that's right 100% of the time does not exist. Uh, but for folks who are interested in that, uh, there are plenty of great Elliotticians out there. You can go to elliotwave.com and, and check that out. Okay, so what I'm looking at is a diagram for those who are just listening um, is kind of this mountain peaks where you see a peak, a drop, a peak, a drop. Now, what isn't listed on just the basic images is the x-axis, the time scale, um, which is the trickiest thing to, I imagine, measure because if someone knew, well, they would have the secret sauce to be able to make huge amounts of capital and money, but that's the tricky part about it. So based on your experience and intuition, even just looking at, can are they correlate? Does it like, if you, do you put it over like a bear and bull market? Like if you looked at the graphs of bear and bull markets, the ups and downs, like, do we see a similar pattern? Yes. Yeah, so uh, what we've, uh, what we've looked at on the Elliott wave side is We've seen Elioticians apply this model to essentially every period of financial market history that we know of. And there are Elioticians who work every day and even try to chart the path of the market intraday using this model. And so it's a useful roadmap. It's a useful, it's useful to see the topography of the market through, uh, through Elliott waves. But you mentioned the timing aspect and timing is absolutely the trickiest part, I would have to say. it. And so one of the powerful parts of the wave model is it can give you some clues about when trends are likely to turn, but it can also give you specific levels in the market that indicate when you're wrong. There are very few market forecasting methodologies that allow you to to see that clearly, uh, you know, when you know, okay, this is going a different direction than I anticipated, and it's going in that direction in a way that invalidates the road that I thought we were on as an analyst. And so that's a, a powerful, a powerful tool that an Elliotician has has in their tool belt. Is not only do you see the probable path that you're on, but you also have some indicators you can look at to suggest when perhaps an alternative interpretation is becoming the more likely one. Right. And that gives you enough data and information to make accurate decision makings on um, from there. And I'm looking at, there's some really nice graphs online about bull and bear markets. Um, and it's interesting because when you zoom out all the way up to 1926, we see Every, it looks like about the average is about 10-ish years, 10, 11 years. We see the bull market rise for eight to 10 years. There are anomalies. And then we see the bear market occur for six months to even up to one and a half years. And it seems like, I mean, I don't know. I'll ask you. Are we in a bear market right now? Like, is that is what is occurring? And then you anticipate a bull coming out, just like we've seen over the last hundred years. 
Okay, a lot of ideas there. We can address them each. So uh, uh, I'll bet I'll, I guess we can start toward the end uh, and just say, since the March lows, we've seen we've seen a huge rebound in the market mm. since the March lows, and so there's clearly a bull market that's been underway since March. But remember, we said the market's a fractal, mm. which means that if you take that image you're looking at, those five waves, those, I assume that's the one you're looking at, you're kind of an up, down, up, down, and up. Let me, yeah, let me share my screen and you can. Uh... Okay. Oh, okay, this is, this is different. I will pull up an Elliott wave image. Yeah, but I'd love to see um, what you have if you want to share something on your screen. For those just listening, you can look up History of U.S. Bear and Bull Market Since 1926 by First Trust. Ah, okay, that's a different group. All right. um, but I'm happy to uh, take a look at really anything you have. I like. Oh, absolutely. Okay, well, I'll, I'll uh, dig some stuff up while I'm talking. I'll stall for a bit while I find the picture I'm looking at. No problem. I'm looking for uh, all right, so... Did you want me to keep that, that one up? Is that helpful? The image that I have up? Do you want me to keep that one up? Oh, you can pull it down. Oh, good. We'll, we'll grab, grab another chart. I think when people look at it, even just the average person, just to zoom out, like if you're listening, just Google the image and you get a real understanding of something that, you know, you think doesn't influence you, but it absolutely does. Um, you, your peers, your family, and their ability to... Uh, you know, successfully financially navigate um, their career and professions. Yes, and these these waves. You know, you're talking about the timing. You know, some of these bull markets last ten years. Some of them last twenty years. But when we talk about the market being a fractal, what it means is that it's always a question of degree. So within a bull market, within a long-term period of uptrending financial prices, there are going to be setbacks along the way. There are going to be periods of, of less positive mood. There's going to be resurgences of more negative mood. And so it really gets down to how far do you want to zoom out? Because we've got stock price data going all the way back to the 16, late 1600s. And by some measures at, uh, at a large scale, we've been in a bull market for more than 300 years with severe setbacks along the way. But if you zoom out that far, all of these things that feel so severe to us living huh. through, of course they are, but they are setbacks. They are short-term steps back within what has been over the past three centuries, a longer term uh, uptrend, a longer term period of positive social mood. And by the same token, the negative mood trends can last quite a long time as well. We had a bear market in PPI adjusted terms in the US dating from 1966 to 1982. So that's a 16 year bear market. We had a bear market from 1929 to 1949 in the U.S. So that's a 20-year period of... So that's interesting. You said 29 to 49, and you mentioned the other one. And of course, it's just uh, one, not every graph is going to be accurate. But the 1929, 
you said the 1940 is showing like mostly a bull market, like that the bear market in the 1930s, which definitely was there, they described it as only lasting one, you know, uh, two and a half, three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it's how you define it, right? Oh, exactly. The market did not make a new all-time high until 1954. So you had a, a long-term, we're talking a quarter century of, of zero net progress in the financial market. So if you go to that 1929 uh, peak and you just draw, draw a horizontal line, I think you'll find that the market doesn't cross that line for Oh, until I see what you mean. Okay. 50s. Yes. And, and so, uh, and you're probably also looking at nominal stock prices rather than stock prices adjusted for inflation. Okay. So if you look at the inflation adjustment, what you find is that there is a low in 1932, which is what you're seeing there in nominal terms. But the period from 32 to 49 is basically just a long sideways trend. So it's going net positive, but it's trading in quite a small range. And that's uh, where the Elliott Wave model is really important because under the Elliott Wave model, we can understand that as all part of a corrective process, all part of a negative social mood trend. And if you think about the social events from the 1930s and 40s, I don't have to remind you of what happened during World War II, that negativity is is acute and it's showing up throughout the social world. So, uh, yeah, we see that period as being quite negative in the mood trend culturally. And, and, but also it shows up in the market, particularly if you do a, an adjustment for, for price inflation. Yeah, that's interesting. But just, and to clarify for everybody as well as you, Matt, um, the, the chart that I'm looking at is a perform, historical performance of the S&P 500 index. So, I mean, that hasn't been around for 300 years, I believe. Um, but if we zoom out further, then we'd be looking at a different, metric to measure the status of the economy and general optimism, pessimism. Yes, that's right. And at long last, I think I have found. Yeah, please. The chart I was, uh, I was looking for. It looks like I found, found a few of them. Okay. I, before we end our conversation, I'll pull up the chart going back to 1695 so we can look at the the yeah. super long-term stuff. I will pull up this here. Let's see if this will work. We'll do a share screen. All, All right. right, great. There we go. Yeah, that's a similar one I saw just earlier. Perfect. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So this is the basic Elliott wave pattern for us. This is the basic pattern of social mood. And so the pattern that Elliott described was a series of what he called five waves. That we've labeled waves one, two, three, four, five that make progress in one direction, followed by three waves that make net progress in the opposite direction. And he said that the market, he didn't have the word fractal, it wasn't coined back then, but uh, what he was saying though was that these five waves collectively make up wave one. So in other words, you can imagine this wave one broken down into a series of five waves. These five waves make up wave one at the next higher degree of trend. And these three counter trend waves make up wave two. Got it. 
So in other words, if we were to take a look at just an idealized picture of stock prices, you can imagine this being at smaller degree waves, one, two, three, four, five, forming wave one at the next higher degree. Then we've got three counter trend waves forming wave two at the next higher degree. Is this based on real data or is this just a like a practice example? This is a conceptual model, but let's look at some real data here. So this is real data from the oil market. And this particular data series goes back to the late 1990s. And it may look like just a bunch of squiggles, but if we think back to this picture, I think it'll start to look fairly familiar. So you could see a wave one here, a wave two, a wave three. Yep, see that for wave five. four. And now a wave five. And if we think back to what we learned earlier, which is from a five, we start to see a trend in the opposite direction unfold. Alexander, this is the pop quiz portion of the conversation. Huh. What would you expect to happen in the oil market after this five wave move? Well, if the theory of every five waves, we see a downturn, I would expect to see a considerable downturn. Okay, so you're looking for a significant move in the opposite direction here. Pretty big well, ba move. based off the far, like, because go back to that. Um, well, if we do, I mean, but that's one wave. But number and what number five, mm -hmm. um, one to five, that represents one wave, right? Yeah. So this would form wave, you know, a higher degree wave one. That would be okay. Right. And then it just looks like, well, after that, there's a downturn. Okay. Well, Alexander, that's an interesting forecast for the oil market. We're looking at uh, this, this chart ends in about 2007. Let's see what the best experts were forecasting for the oil market at exactly the same time. Okay. Because I These ain't no expert. Some of the books that came out uh, around this time. In uh, the argument that was being made in the popular press and in the analytical press as well, was that we were running out of oil. The world was running out of oil. And so from a supply and demand perspective, if something's becoming more scarce, then the value of what remains goes up, right? That's economics 101. And so all of these books are making what was called the peak oil argument, meaning we've passed our peak in the supply of oil. We're just going to see ever higher prices after this. The market can only go up. Right. Based and, only on the idea of supply and demand. Yes. But the picture that we saw from the Elliott Way model is completely different. Right. right? Saying we should see a pretty big move down. So let's see what happened next. Whoa. This is what happened. Go. So this is just one powerful example. Not every Elliott Wave forecast works out like this. Not every market is this clear. And, and Just to clarify for people listening, um, my hypothesis was correct. I, the way you were speaking, I thought I was going to be wrong, but it looks like the oil market took a big downturn after 2007 and that Elliott Wave model was accurate. It was useful in anticipating the string. Now, this, is, this is more than a 70% drop. This is, this is yeah. massive. A massive collapse. And if you, if you think about, this is the important generalization, is that if you think about financial markets from a supply and demand perspective, 
the same way you might think about, say, the market for bread or the market for toilet paper during a pandemic um, or shoes or whatever. Um, if that's your model, if you're working from a supply and demand perspective, in our view, you're using the wrong model. You're using a model for an economic market to describe a financial market. Right. We see those two fields as completely different. And uh, as a result, they require two completely different models of participant behavior. Thank you for showing me that. Is, is, that, is that the main thing you wanted to show me? Is there anything else there? There is one other chart I would like to find. I would like to find that. Uh, Please, because that was a great example. Now, I'm just curious, how did they formulate that model? Because what is it based off again? What is that Elliott wave? Oh, the, Elliot wave uh, the gentleman who discovered it, Ralph Nelson Elliott, discovered it by uh, empirical research. He fell ill later in life. He was bedridden. And his passion was, became the stock market. And so he just studied financial market price charts. And he drew what he saw. He identified these recurring patterns in financial markets, documented them using the data available to him. At the time, it was about 70, 75 years of data. And since Elliot's time, other people working from that model, there's been a continuous uh, string of Elliot Wave analysts, Elliott Wave market analysts, have taken that model and used it to understand trends in the markets that have unfolded thereafter. But I would love to find this 300-year uh, chart for you. My Please gosh. take your time. It's no, no stress. Okay. So this is a chart of stock prices going all the way back to 1695. And we've started with British stock prices and then around 1776, we've spliced on US stock prices. And we see the stock market going up, going down, going up, going down, and so on. So let's think about the stock market as being an indicator of social mood. So if we were to think about something like peace and war, would you expect to see peace when society was feeling ebullient and concordant and uh, people were getting along with each other? Or would you expect to see, uh, or would you expect to see peace when people were feeling angry, aggressive, and upset? Right. Well, based on our conversation, peace and optimism go together. Yes. So we would expect to see periods of peace surrounding these positive mood extremes indicated yes. by peaks in the market. And we'd expect to see conflict and, and even war at these negative mood extremes, clustering around these negative extremes of the market when society's the most angry, the most fearful, and the, we would suspect the, the most likely to engage in conflict. So there, you can find all sorts of hypotheses to explain you know, trends in peace and war. Here we've known about socionomics for not that long, right? Just, just this conversation. And you've already been able to generate a hypothesis that would explain perhaps the timing of peace and war over 300 years. So let's see how we did. Oh. Not so bad. What we find is that these periods of, of peace tend to cluster around these positive mood extremes and Conflict and war tends to happen in these bear markets and these negative mood periods, often near 
an extreme. This is particularly interesting. This peak here is from is in 1720, and this low here uh, is in the early 1780s. So you have a six-decade negative social mood trend, a 60-year bear market. If you, you we think uh, stock prices going down for six months or a year is a lot to deal with. Imagine them going down for 60 years. And it was toward the end of that negative mood trend when you had two of the most important revolutions of the past 300 years. You had the American Revolution and the French Revolution. I want to pause there. That's really important because you said earlier in the conversation that the next negative social mood would predict a social fracturing of some sort. And what we're seeing there, revolutions, wars, world wars, Every time that occurs, there is some type of fracturing, some type of split of the what you call the consensus. And that is really interesting. But also on the other side, that's quite concerning because what is going to be the next thing to dramatically shift this world? One of the findings that we have and we can we can see it on this on on this chart is that it's often in a longer term negative social mood trend it's often not the first decline where you see the significant war breakout okay. it's often in a subsequent decline so like the after effects like the like the the how do i say the residual effects of the actual big event or something else <laughs> A couple things to keep in mind. So okay. wars are, they often take quite a long time to mobilize, particularly in a society where you've got uh, rather bureaucratic decision-making processes. And so not just in the area of war, but in the area, all sorts of areas, financial regulation is another big one. What you tend to find is that government is often among the last to join a trend. And this happens in some sense, uh, it, it's ironic uh, in the financial markets, for instance, as soon as the government starts getting excited about a financial trend, they start uh, you know, pushing legislation, say, to boost home ownership, or the central bank gets really excited about, say, the gold market and starts purchasing gold. They're probably quite late to that party. That's a sign that that trend's rather mature. And on the downside, the uh, the other side of that coin is that something like a war, it takes often so much societal negativity in order to mobilize uh, something that dramatic is that it, it tends to happen rather deep into these trends. So we talked about these revolutions, but uh, you know, the French Revolution, the American Revolution. But even, even some of these more recent examples, if you think back to the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, uh, the stock market peaked in January of 2000, well, depending on which market index you look at, in early 2000, and then made its low in October of 2002. And Congress actually authorized the use of force in Iraq. I believe it was either the very day that the market tested that low um, later on or near it. The point is it was quite late in the trend. So these, uh, you know, these are not the kind of things that you want to set your watch by, but it's certainly uh, 
a commonality that can be a bit refreshing. For instance, if you're worried about a world war erupting at the first onset of a negative social mood trend, that's something that's probably going to come quite a ways later, quite, right. a, quite deep into that trend. Okay. Now, might you see conflict of some sort before then? You know, of course, I guess there's always some country not getting along with someone else. But something as dramatic as, say, a world war you would expect when we forecast would come later, much later in that trend. And if it's a long-term negative mood trend, then you might be out of the woods in terms of a world war kind of a situation for years, if not even decades down the road. So that's, that's one uh, can we call it a bright spot, I guess? <laughs> We're talking about, you know, delaying something, uh, something of that magnitude, I guess, the longer it takes before it gets here, the better. Well, how, how long are we talking here? Because, you know, World War One, it's hard because the, the, the graph is, um, the x-axis is quite large, so it's hard to see years. I mean, but when the first social mood uh, started to decline in what looked like 1913, 1914, and then we see World War I, like how many years or months do we see of this social mood decline on average before a war breaks out? I don't know that I would pinpoint it so specifically, Alexander. I would, okay. I would, I would answer that like this, though. If you think back to that Elliott wave model we looked at, the five waves and then the ABC, when we're talking about the war happening at these large degree trends, it tends to be in that C wave where you see them. So you would see a significant move down in the market, some sort of rebound, and then and then another move down. So it's, it, you know, just a, one concrete example, you've got a move down in the market, a rebound, another move down, and then you've got the civil war. You've got move down, you've got a rebound, and then you've got another move down, and then you've got revolutions. It's not the kind of thing, again, you know, these are historical tendencies. So uh, that would be what we would look for, is we'd look for that C wave, that latter part of that negative mood trend to be, uh, to be an area where you'd expect to see a significant amount of conflict, uh, if, if not a significant war. Okay, two things off that. Would you then say, practically speaking, like what can the average person get from this? Because I'm always doing my best to try and pull that out. An opportune time to invest, if you have the means to, is when social mood is down because the market is devalued and there is opportunity to grab something at a lower relative price, sit on it, and then in the near future, be able to reap the rewards of your investment. Yes, this is this is important, and it's in some sense it's investing one hundred and one. It's buy low and sell high. Right. The reality of the situation, though, is that buying low and selling high is tremendously difficult to do for the typical investor, the typical trader. And the reason for that is, remember, we talked about these positive social mood extremes as being periods of widespread social optimism. And the irony and the paradox is that it's precisely at the moment of peak uh, confidence, that moment of peak optimism, when a trend in the opposite direction is the most likely to unfold. And so what you find is that the overwhelming majority of investors, the overwhelming majority of speculators, and we've looked at this not just on the individual level, we've looked at institutional investors, we've looked at 
Wall Street analysts. We've looked at corporations buying back their own shares, and they are all part of the same herd. They are all the most invested at exactly the wrong time. And social mood is the most elevated when the market is at that positive extreme. And the opposite is true at the lows. You're talking about the opportunity at a major low, at a major down point, a negative extreme. That's exactly when regular individual investors, institutional investors, mutual fund managers, hedge fund managers, corporations are the least interested in holding stock. So people are the least interested at the best buying opportunity, and they're the most interested when it would actually be the best time. See, it's so interesting because just this hour conversation has shown me why the opposite is, and it's just even common, I don't know, it just feels like common sense. Like, so you're telling me that the traditional mindset is when everything's high, buy high because it's going to keep getting better. You want to quickly get in. And when things are low, they want to hold on because you don't want to take risk. You know, be careful. Is that the traditional thinking? Excuse my ignorance. Oh, it it absolutely is. That's exactly what we see in the data. That is precisely it. Uh, In fact, I can run through a couple of charts if you want to take a look at. Let's do it. These charts give a really nice visual representation to the concepts we're exploring. Excellent, excellent. I will pull up a chart and we will take a look at this tendency. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I just give an example. Like when the, it was very interesting. I observed the market this year, like, and it just in ways I hadn't done before. When the World Health Organization announced this was going to be a, this is a pandemic in March, I never seen stock price. I saw that. I saw those stock prices dip down and I looked at Amazon because I was looking into Amazon. I'm curious, all right? Some of the biggest global corporations. What's happening there? The stock plummeted to 1700 And shortly after, it boomed, along with many other corporations, obviously. But potentially, there was a great opportunity for many people to get in on one of the largest companies and fastest growing companies in the world. And now it's a thousand dollars more per share. It's amazing how swift these trends can move. And, uh, and it's also, I mean, if we think back to the social environment in March, think about how it's difficult to even remember, but uh, think about how pessimistic, how fearful, how scary, how uncertain the world appeared. And we were saying, again, it's at precisely those moments of yes. peak pessimism, peak fear, peak anxiety. It's when you're at those negative extremes that trends in the opposite direction uh, unfold. And so this is, uh, this is the insight that we can, that we can provide. I, uh, it looks like, according to uh, at least one source that I was able to dig up, the World Health Organization finally declared a pandemic on March 11th. There you go. So stock prices peaked February 12th and some indexes even peaked in January. So uh, in the bottom was March 24th. So in other words, of that, what, about six week decline, it was two thirds over by the time the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. So they're even lagging wow. this mood trend. They're becoming a late... Uh, they're late to the party uh, as well. And one of the things that we'll look at when we look at this slide of of, uh, 
investor behavior across so many different classes of investors is that we'll find that what we saw at that March low is highly consistent with what we see at major lows throughout history. So this is so you've lived through this. You got to experience it in real time. You saw it. Now I know for the next pandemic, my actions are <laughs> going to be very clear. I'm going to know exactly what to do. <laughs> well, here's here's the challenge though. These negative mood trends can go on for quite a long time. Remember, that's true. And I think that's the thing. Year. Many people were thinking, oh, this is going to get even worse. Oh, precisely. That was the dominant narrative was that this is, uh, this is just, yeah. As we became more sure, we became more comfortable, we learned more, that subsided. Yes. yes. So, so I guess I'm going to, I think I'll know what I'll do, but I could be wrong. You could be wrong. And if you're too confident doing it, it's actually one sign that, you, uh, that there might be some more downside. Yeah, <laughs> so true. Uh, it's tricky. Which is why it's so difficult to, to make that decision in real time. It's so difficult to execute it because every part of your being is going to be screaming at you not to do it. Uh, you're going to feel horrible about it. You're going to feel like this is so risky. You're going to feel that risk. It's going to be palpable because we're wired to join the herd. And let's look at some examples of the investing herd here. So this is a chart of stock prices on the top. By the way, is this showing up? We're all good. Perfect. So we see the Dow Jones Industrial Average on the top. And then this bottom chart here, it's a bit noisy, but this is a chart of the percentage bulls, meaning the percentage of people who think stock prices are going up, uh, you know, who have a, a positive outlook on the market, uh, who are individual investors. So this would just be like you and me, okay? And what we find is that the highest readings on this chart tend to correspond with significant peaks in the market. So people are most optimistic near peaks. But if we look at these lows, we see that the lows in the market tend to correspond with these extreme readings. So to, to interpret that, those lows, you're looking at the percentage of bulls is people, less people thinking it's uh, an opportune time to invest. Exactly. So you're seeing the height of pessimism right. at the low in the market, which is exactly what you would expect socioeconomically. Because we're saying, yeah, but that's why the market is at a negative extreme is because pessimism is at a negative extreme. But the irony of it is, 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 you know, you can understand that intellectually, but the irony of it is that what it means practically is that at the best buying opportunities, it's the time when people are the least interested in buying. So, and at the, yeah. at the worst times you could buy, it's when people are the most interested. And this is just individuals. This is a chart of people who trade in the futures markets. This is a slightly more sophisticated kind of trader. And you see a similar chart here. We've again got the Dow Jones industrial average on top. We've got percentage bulls among futures traders. And here at the low in March of 2009, this was the low in the financial crisis, only 2% of future traders were optimistic about the market. So, uh, and I don't wanna give individual traders a bad name, financial advisors do no better. You see the maximum pessimism at these lows, you see these spikes in optimism near these highs and not just advisors, these are mutual fund managers. 
It's the same behavior. They hold the least cash when it would be ideal to hold the most cash and they're the most heavily invested at these peak periods when it's the worst possible time to be heavily invested. Maybe I'd love to, let's keep going through this, but, but to interrupt a second, maybe it's my own kind of inexperience and ignorance and also my character disposition, like towards how I analyze risk. And, you know, I, I have a, just a different kind of approach to, to risk maybe than the average in, or the, the typical individual. But this makes complete sense to me. Like, I don't understand why the average quote unquote expert within finances and, and hedge fund managers and traders behave like this. Well, if you're expecting them to behave rationally, then it doesn't make any sense. But if you understand that they're all part of the same psychological herd that is creating these price movements, then it makes all the sense in the world. Wow, okay. What is this price decline here, for example? This price decline means investors of all stripes, hedge fund managers, mutual fund managers, futures traders, individual traders, are all becoming more pessimistic. They are all agreeing. And when I say all, I don't mean every single one of them. I just mean as a group, you know, the consensus view reflected in the market price is that these stocks are less valuable today than they were yesterday. Okay. And so this, this downtrend that we're seeing in the market, this particular period is the financial crisis. This is the top in October, 2007 and the low in March of 2009. This is created by that shift in psychology toward pessimism. And you see that pessimism manifesting here in the prices in the market, but you also see it manifesting here. uh, For example, we're looking at some survey data and we're seeing that these hedge fund managers are are becoming pessimistic along with everyone else. And if you think about a hedge fund manager, you think about a a typical economist at a Wall Street firm, for example, um, or or a major CEO at a big corporation, we tend to think that all of these people are really smart and know a ton about the market. And Alexander, that is 100% true as a group. They are generally pretty smart and they do know a lot about the market. But it's also 100% true that they are humans and they're humans operating in a social context of overwhelming uncertainty. And when we're in that environment, what do we do? We default to our herding impulse. And so they're joining the herd just like everybody else. Isaac Newton, Hard to think of someone uh, that the general person would think of uh, smarter than Isaac Newton. Famously bought into the South Sea bubble, one of the biggest bubbles in financial history. Um, He bought back into that bubble right at the top and ended up losing a ton of money because the irony is that the the more intellectually oriented you are, the smarter you are. Sometimes that means uh, some of those people, not all, uh, can be rather resistant to joining the herd. And so they can be among the last to join the trend. The, that hurting impulse, that optimism, that euphoria becomes so strong that even someone as rational and disciplined and calculating as Newton, or as you would think rational and disciplined as a hedge fund manager or a, or a major corporation's uh, executive, why they join the herd as well. This is just to finish the chart. We've only got a couple more. This is, some, uh, this is a chart of corporate investors. We're talking about corporations buying back their own stock. When are they the most interested in buying their own shares? Worst possible time you can do it, right at the top. But it has to be that way because their peak optimism is what's creating. Of course. That's such an important point. Like 
this behavior needs to exist among the consensus for this, this pattern to occur. Precisely, precisely. And so what's interesting is that we see this in financial markets. And we're talking about markets for investment assets, markets where someone's buying something not to consume it, but because they hope to sell it later for a profit. When you pivot away from that and you get into markets where people are buying, say, just for straight, straight up consumption, uh, you, see a, you see a different pattern emerging. You see much more stable pricing because pricing in that domain has much more certainty to it. Now, there are exceptions to that. Sometimes a market can change from an economic market to a financial market. Uh, we can think of some examples of that. Uh, let's think about Beanie Babies in the 1990s, just a little plush toy. So initially this is just a little toy, a uh, little, uh, you know, something for kids. But the speculative fever in the 1990s turns the Beanie Baby market into a financial market. And suddenly there's this mania for Beanie Babies and people are paying you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars to get the really rare ones. And it's just another symptom of this positive psychology, this euphorically optimistic, uh, psychology that's so conducive to wild speculation and all sorts of stuff. And that's just the hurting impulse getting exactly what the hurting impulse demands. Wow, that is really, really interesting, Matt. And sounds like, I mean, okay, where do the most successful, maybe not, let's not even go most successful, where, where is the most opportune, well, I guess we already answered it, but... I'm just trying to find like when you fall on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. That's a Mark Twain quote. Mm. And that is something I often think about um, in thinking about ideas. And it's clear that quote applies here. And so I wonder, let's think about the minority that is doing well and is making prosperous, intelligent decisions um, using this information how are they, where are they making those decisions? When do they make those decisions and what character do they generally have to help them be financially and fiscally wealthy amongst the scope of all this? I hope that makes sense. I'm trying to pass out the question. It's difficult. Yeah, no, I, I think I know where you're going with this. And the originator of socionomic theory, Robert Prechter, in one of his books talks about, uh, he has an anecdote where he tells a story about traders that he knows personally who make a living trading the market. And he talks about the traits that set them apart from exactly. everybody else. Yeah. What makes these people unique? Yeah. And the first thing to understand is that people who trade for a living over decades, I'm not talking about someone who gets into it for six months or a year, people who for decades are able to trade financial instruments for a living. One thing that you find is it's a tiny number of people, minuscule, minuscule, minuscule. And Prechter points out that of the tiny number of this small, small number, he finds an overwhelming amount of them. It was either all of them or nearly all of them had a military background. And he thinks that it's, what's important is not that they served in the military. What's important is that they have an instilled discipline in them in their decision-making process. So 
having an ability to act and uh, adapt in a systematic way that you can stick to over time seems to be important. And he's proxying that would maybe the discipline uh, that someone who had served in the military for a while might have. I, I, think, I think they were all Marines, if I'm remembering the story right. Um, the, the other trait uh, that you find often, uh, at least that, that Prechter writes about, um, is that not only do they have discipline, but they had a specific decision-making protocol. And this is the irony of, of being a successful trader is that you have to have, or it helps, it seems to help to have a routinized way of making decisions. Uh, having a trading plan that is describable. Not like, oh, I kind of feel like I get in and get out over here, um, but to have parameters around your trading that are successful. That's incredibly difficult to generate, but it's also the easiest part of the process because the third part is the hardest of all. And it's an ability to overcome your innate desire to join the herd. Yes. This is the most challenging because we are biological creatures. We are social creatures. And when you are in the minority, Remember, we saw that chart where at a, at a significant low, there are only 2% bulls. This is at the best buying opportunity of the past 11 years. Only 2% of traders were optimistic on the market. When you're in a minority that is so tiny and you're talking about money, something that's rather consequential, oh my, the emotional turmoil that your body is going to generate in that moment of making the decision is powerful. And so to have the discipline and the fortitude to stand up to that and use your rational mind to overcome this non-rational feeling of peak despair is so tough. Uh, but people who are able to do it in, in, in the opposite at a major peak, you know, to, to, to anticipate a downside when everyone else is just overwhelmingly Confident, like we saw in that example from the oil market, where we had all these books saying, oh, prices are going to go to the moon. They're going to keep going up. But you looked at it from an Elliott Wave perspective and said, actually, it looks like the opportunity might be in the other direction. It's one thing to look at it on a chart. It's another thing to rewind to that time period and put yourself in a- Yeah, and feel it. Making, yeah. the, making that call. Exactly. Totally different. And so it's, it's that part. It's really the mindset part. That can be the most challenging. I think, okay, you've, you've, that is so uh, well articulated. And I think you've articulated the clear differences in the disposition and character between the wealthiest traders and the ones who are not as successful. And you have an operating system of how you make decisions and you have uh, like a strong relationship with understanding when to fall away or step away from the crowd. And I think it makes sense, right? Because survival would, our survival instincts is like, we got to be with the crowd. We got to be with the group because so we can survive and prosper and procreate and all that. That makes sense. And then there's this quote by Ray Dalio that I just pulled up here. And he said something that just reinforced like Ray Dalio, this, this incredible entrepreneur, businessman, investor, what's common produces only common results. 
don't mm. judge anything that's good based on whether it's common because it's only going to give you common results. Oh, yes. Yes. That's quite good. I think you, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's exactly that. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the uncommon person. Uh, Prector has a quote that's, uh, I'm going to get it a bit wrong, but the sentiment will be correct. Uh, says the best way for people to maximize, for most people to maximize their return in financial markets is to avoid them. And it's precisely because we're so wired to do exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time. And it's for the reason you mentioned this, herding impulse makes a ton of sense. If you're living out in the bush, you know, uh, if it's thousands of years ago mm. and uh, you know, you're, you see a group of people running, you don't stop and say, excuse me, what are you running from? You just assume maybe there's a predator and I should probably yes. get on the move ASAP. So it's not a time to be, to, to use reason in that situation. It's panic, follow the herd. And when you look at animals who are herding, yes, of course you can see the panic, but as Prechter makes the argument, well, they're herding the other times too. You know, most of the time they're just grazing and they're, you know, around the water and hole taking a drink, but they're still following the herd. They're still, you know, a part of the same social organization. And humans as social creatures, we seem to have the same impulses. And again, it, it's beneficial from an evolutionary perspective in many contexts, but it is so maladaptive to our behavior in financial markets. And that hurting impulse, that finding safety in numbers, safety with the group, gets us into so much trouble at these changes in trend, especially. Absolutely. And it's something to reflect on. And it's something that, uh, I think you almost have to train yourself like a muscle um, to practice because the wirings of our million year old brain are not always useful in the technological modern era that we have designed today. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. In, in financial markets, it's one of those inventions of society yes. that's Think about all the wealth that's been created through financial markets. It's, it's stunning. But, but it's fabricated. Always... We just created. Have you read Sapiens? I have not. People have recommended it to me. Are you, are you going to tell me I need to read it? Because then maybe I just Matt, to... I'm going to tell you. I'm going to be that okay. seventh person. Okay. But I think you would appreciate it from this perspective because it clearly defines how humans have created these systems, fabrications of our own thoughts it, the currency of money and all these uh, different things in our society and how the clear contradiction and friction that is created by our very old brain that has a different operating system to today's functioning. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is fascinating. And the, the other side of this that's important is that we've looked at 300 years of stock prices, but social mood was still around before then. We still had wars, we had pandemics, we had periods of prosperity, we had periods of retrenchment. And uh, one of my colleagues, Pete Kendall, is doing a study right now of, of social mood in the ancient world, trying to find indicators of these mood trends uh, using you know, admittedly some relatively sparse data series that exist back then. And so these trends in social mood have shown up throughout human history. Uh, 
But it's only since the advent of financial markets where we've had this way to measure them rather instantaneously. And now we're in this era of social media where there's all kinds of data that humans are generating constantly based on whatever you're posting online. And there are even some researchers who are trying to use that data as a proxy measure for social mood, uh, just to give us another data series, possibly someday we'll be able to do it reliably even, maybe it'll become an even more reliable, even quicker way to measure mood than the stock market. But for now, the, the market is, um, is the best we, we have. So to your point, yes, of course, we've created these systems. Humans have created financial systems, social media systems. But these are, in our view, I, guess I, would, I would say slightly differently, these are just venues where social mood can manifest. But even without a stock market, we would still have periods of economic prosperity, periods of economic retrenchment, periods where people yes. were getting along with each other, periods where they were getting along less so and more primed to conflict. Um, but the market is certainly one of those human creations. Where yeah. We, and and I think if you look at the ancient world, and like I think we just replace... Uh, shares or stocks with like gold or garments or sand or not sand salt for example right Prices, yeah yeah you're going to hold on to those things more in terms of pessimism because you think there's a famine would you say that's an accurate kind of correlation yeah well the data that i'd be interested in seeing and i don't know if it exists uh, or not would that's be tough, some yeah. kind of pricing data mm. on the assets so if people were we're buying these assets to consume, that would be one thing. But if they were buying them in a speculative capacity, yeah. know, trade with other uh, uh, you know, nearby uh, towns or countries or something, I mean, that'd be fascinating to look at that data and see if we can, do we see Elliott waves in that data? Do we see these periods of, of boom and bust more generally? So that's a fascinating area for future research. And I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll learn a lot Absolutely. Absolutely. This is really interesting um, topics we've, we've covered. I want to be, you've been very generous with your time, Matt, and I really appreciate it. Um, just to clarify about the Elliott Wave model, is it, is it the, every, we looked at that chart. Is it every wave that you see the downturn? Like what is the uh, kind of operating system? Um, is there a black and white, every X number we see Y downturn? Okay, sure. So the important thing to keep in mind is that after you see five waves in one direction, five waves are not always up. If the larger degree trend is down, then you'd see five waves down, for example. Um, but after you see five waves unfold under the Elliott wave model, then you would look for a move in the opposite direction. Got it. Yeah. So if you're looking at a 300 year chart and you can count five waves up, then you'd be looking at a rather large degree correction. Whereas if you're looking at a chart that spans you know, six months or five years or something, and you can count five waves up, then the re retrenchment, the retracement after that would generally be uh, of, of, of the same degree. But then how do you correlate that to uh, you know, a stock market where like what time point do you look at for each little wave within that? Sure. So we there's a temptation when people do market analysis to try to do it quantitatively. Okay. So uh, back in 2006 and seven, there were all sorts of articles about algorithmic traders uh, on Wall Street who were designing quantitative algorithms to capitalize on opportunities in the market. 
And then there are all sorts of articles in 2008, 9, and 10 about how almost 100% of those strategies blew up shortly after they were implemented. We find looking for quantitative relationships in the data is precarious at best, and it's far better to look okay. for qualitative relationships in the data. So if we think back to that five-wave chart, it's not the kind of thing where you can say, okay, a wave one typically lasts this many days or this many years. Rather, what you do is you look at the form of that advance and you understand that at all degrees of trend, that form expands and contracts. So if you can pick a consistent time scale and you look at the chart, you look at the data and you can count five waves in one direction that makes sense in terms of their form, they don't violate any of Elliot's rules in terms of form, then you've got a leg up on anticipating that move in the opposite direction. If you think back to that oil chart, some of those waves lasted longer than others, but still we could recognize that five wave form. And once we saw that form, that was what suggested to us it was time for a significant move in the opposite direction. And that's what unfolded. That makes sense. Thank you. Um, one of the last things I wanted to ask you is what something, what surprised you the most about this year that you didn't anticipate? Oh, that's fascinating. That is fascinating. Hmm. Because these models, they're very predictive, we're confident, yes. but they're not perfect. And even doesn't even have to be about specifically the Elliott Wave model, but even socioeconomics in general, what surprised you the most that you didn't I'll anticipate? You, this is, this is a, a different answer than, than you might be expecting. But back in... June of 2019, so this was even before 2020, the uh, Elliott Wave analysts we followed were doing some work that suggested we were getting close to a, a significant positive extreme in the markets. And as socionomists, we said, okay, well, are we seeing anything culturally that also reminds us of significant, you know, positive extremes? And indeed, we, we saw a number of Echoes from the late 1990s. We saw a number of echoes from 1966 to 72, which was another uh, long-term transitional process, mood transitioning from positive to negative. And so we were looking for a not only a significant move down in the markets, that's the Elliott Wave side, but the socioeconomic side to that is we were looking for this fracturing of consensus, fracturing of the status quo, um, you know, a turn toward greater social pessimism, et cetera. Now we didn't know that it was going to be a pandemic. I'm not suggesting that. Um, but what I am suggesting is that it did not take a pandemic to forecast those changes. Uh, but here's what was surprising. That move up since March was larger, more powerful, more substantial than we were, than I was expecting, certainly uh, as an individual. And so you know, what's surprising to me uh, is really this resurgence, how powerful this resurgence in optimism has been. And it makes sense from a socioeconomic perspective, but it surprised even, even me with how, uh, how quickly and how dramatically the social world changed. Uh, Do you think because that may be perhaps another variable or variables that these models or these frames of models of thinking don't consider or it makes complete sense from a socioeconomic view why you would see the increase in optimism um it does 
I'm just saying, as we were talking about earlier, at these moments of peak pessimism, it can be difficult to anticipate that resurgence in optimism. And so even though I study this stuff all day long, I'm in it, I'm immersed in it, this resurgence in optimism, how swift it was and how severe it's been was even surprising to me. Mm. Now, once we've seen that swift move up in the market, then it becomes much easier to say, okay, these trends towards civil unrest that we've seen will probably peter out. We've now seen that. These huge spikes in unemployment that we were seeing in March and April will probably reverse course. We've seen that. So once you've seen that resurgence in optimism, it can be quite simple then to forecast these other changes in broader society. But my goodness, that was a powerful move up. Absolutely uh, it was. And I wonder what the future will look like. Um, But that's the whole game, right? Uh, What's been the most lucrative investment? You don't even... Maybe it's too personal question, but you can talk about in general terms if you're comfortable. What's the most lucrative investment that you've been able to make or maybe your peers, wherever you're comfortable with sharing that you've made through this framework? Was it a specific stock, group of stocks or even a different type of investment that you're like, wow, I'm glad I did that and I knew that? Sure. Uh, Back in, we'll we'll talk about... uh, maybe a call that some Elliotitians were able to make that was pretty stunning. Um, back in 2010, when Bitcoin was trading at six cents, uh, Elliot Prechter, my colleague, wrote up Bitcoin uh, in the Elliot Wave Theorist, called it, uh, he was saying this could be the future of money. Uh, we were one of the earliest people on the Bitcoin train. Uh, anyone who bought Bitcoin at six cents, even though it's come down a bit, it's also rallied back up. I, I think they're pretty happy. I, I don't think any of those people are still holding on, right? Because my gosh, it would have been such a significant gain. Uh, you know, but again, you know, not every call works out anywhere near that well. Uh, you know, LATicians have made a ton of stunning calls, and, and other calls that have not worked out any, uh, have not worked out as well. But if I had to pinpoint one that uh, was pretty impressed with, it would be that Bitcoin call back in 2010. Yeah, that's a. Uh... That's a whole nother conversation where we talk about virtual electronic currency and perhaps a, a one for another day. But the, the most topical thing that I probably that I wanted to ask you was the election. Um, you know, you guys uh, were a bit consumed with forecasting how the US election was going to impact social mood. And obviously that's inferences onto the market. <sighs> what a roller well what seemed like a roller coaster from a lot of people's perception maybe not so much for you guys when you zoom out now that's well it's pretty much done you know inauguration hasn't been finished but you know it's pretty much done the election so what do you make of it what do you learn from it where were you wrong and i don't mean you specifically but just the ideas and how do you reflect upon okay. it for the average person to that they can take? Sure. This is a huge topic, and it's a topic that we've written so much about. Uh, I'm going to do my best, Alexander, to keep this reasonably brief. I <laughs> if I ramble on too long, just say, Matt, my gosh, come back. To- <laughs> I like okay. it. No, it's interesting. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, the election is something that we're, we're really interested in. Uh, and... The reason that we were interested in 
in the election is because elections are an interesting outlet for a social mood. So it's not the case that the election impacts the mood. Rather, it's that the social mood inclines people to either reelect the leader or throw mm -hmm. the bum out, so to speak, as the saying goes. Okay. So back in 2012, we did one of the most comprehensive studies of stock market performance and elections that anyone had ever done. We went back to George Washington's run for re-election in 1792. And what we found was that the stock market was a better indicator, better re-election indicator than were GDP, inflation, and unemployment, either separately or combined. And we think that's because, going back to where we started this conversation, the stock market is an excellent and relatively swift indicator of social mood relative to those other slower moving variables. So we dug back into that research this year. And one of the things we had found in 2012 was that the three year net change in the stock market was of all the variations we tested was the best indicator. And that makes sense to us because in the US presidents serve four year terms the predecessor generally gets credit or blame for what happens in year one. So if you got a four-year term, you bar the first year, you're left with the remaining three. So we found that three-year window is really important. This year, we revisited that research and we found something that was striking. And we found that in elections where the stock market had a net gain of 20% or more in those three years leading up to election day. Compared to when? Sorry? Compared to when? Like the three years leading up compared to what? The year before or the whole three years before? Ah, so uh, if, you, uh, if you calculate the percentage gain in the stock market from election day to three years, uh, from three years prior to election day to election day itself. I've got it. Okay. And uh, for the data nerds out there, uh, and I, I use that as a term of endearment, I promise takes one to uh, in our study, we used monthly data because we didn't have daily stock market data going back to George Washington. So technically in our work, it wasn't election day. It was the last trading day of October. That was as close to election day as we could get exact same uh, period for all the elections. But basically you can think about that three year period leading up to election day. Um, so we found that in elections where a president was running for another term and the market in that period registered a gain of at least 20%. Those presidents were reelected 87.5% of the time. It's 14 out of 16, 87.5%. Now, in this election, a three-year net gain corresponded to a level in the Dow of 28,052. And what we saw was just weeks before the election, the Dow was above that key 20% level. So we were in the zone where incumbents had been reelected a very high percentage of the time. Okay. But in the months before then, months leading up to it, the market was basically oscillating. It was so interesting to watch it in real time because it was just going back and forth between that greater than 20% and less than 20% level. And we went to the media and we said, hey, if the market stays where it is now, above 20%, historically incumbents have done pretty well. But then something dramatic happened. The week before the election, we had the worst pre-election week 
for stocks in the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The market had never lost more the week before an election than it lost the week before this election. Wow. And that decline brought the Dow below that key 20% level and into a range where it is a statistical coin flip. Presidents have been reelected five times and they've lost four times. So you got nine elections, no statistician would tell you that's enough for a significant result. But the point is all the history we have over the 200 plus years of, of re-election history was telling us things probably just got a lot tighter and a lot less likely than incumbent to win. So on October 30th, the last trading day of October, we said this election is basically a coin flip. You know, incumbents have won by the slightest amount. You know, they've won more often in this range than they've lost. But, uh, you know, statistically, it's a coin flip. And at the time, that didn't really seem like much of a forecast, but it was so different from what we were seeing in the polls, which is that, my gosh, you, you look at the polls, it looked like the election was going to be over by midnight. We know who was going to win in an overwhelming landslide. And when we woke up the day after the election, the election was still a coin flip. It was still a coin flip two days, three days mm -hmm. after the election. And it was much closer than the polls were anticipating. And so there's been so much written both in 2016 and this year about, hey, can we trust polling? You know, what's going on with these polls? Why are they not quite getting this right? Well, the good news is that you can get a read on the closeness of an election without polling a single person, just using the socionomic perspective and looking at the, the indicators in the market. So, you know, like you said, uh, we've got we've got results. Uh, we know there's going to be some legal challenges. We'll see what what happens. But uh, we're scoring this one socioeconomics one, pollsters zero, uh, <laughs> in terms of you know kind of getting a read on on how close this is. Going. That is fascinating because you have there is a model out there that can detect with almost a ninety percent certainty based on statistics that if the I want to summarize this point if the market has made a 20% increase um, from election, pretty much election day to the inauguration to three years prior, which is equivalent. Well, go ahead. It's, it's three years prior to the two election days. So um, in this case, 2020 election, it's from oh. the end of October, 2017 to the end go of ahead. October, 2020. Go ahead. And thank you. No, it's important. And then, which is equivalent to 20 something thousand points on, on the stock market. What did you say? Oh, for this particular election, Oh, a 20% gain from where the market was at the end of October, 2017, 20% higher than that corresponded to a level in the Dow, a reading in the Dow Jones industrial average, 28,000. So relatively it's 20%. Yes. Yeah. Just multiply, uh, you know, wherever the Dow is yeah. three, before an okay. That's 20%. Yes. That is really interesting. Um, and when you look back through history, it's you can see those trends. How many times has it occurred like this where it flipped and you just went from, you know, quite certain 20% plus to like half, half, went under 20, over 20? Does that happen often? Well, uh, I'll tell you one of the. <laughs> One of the things that was so surprising about this election is that it's never happened so fast, so close to an election. Yeah. There have been plenty of, of presidents where the market was at some point 20% above that key level, and then it ended up dropping down by election day. But we've never seen it happen just with eye-popping speed uh, in this case. 
And just one uh, quick other uh, point. Uh, mm. And we said 87.5% of the time incumbents had been uh, reelected when the market did gain that 20%. It's 14 out of 16. The two exceptions are interesting. Uh, the only exception, in fact, in the past 200 years is George H.W. Bush in 1992. And if one analog we were looking at was that George H.W. Bush election because the market had to gain more than 20%, but a broader index of stocks called the value line actually had a net decrease over that period. There was a recession during his term and he lost. And we saw all of those dominoes basically aligned during Trump's term. He also had a recession during his term um, in that broader index, the value line composite was net down in that three year period uh, as well. So it's true that the historical tendency is that they've won eight, incumbents have won 87 and a half percent of the time, but you still wanna evaluate each election to ask the question, are there factors at play here that suggest this election might deviate from the historical trend? And in 2020, I think anyone could make a list of, you know, five or six things that were unique about 2020 that you don't typically see. But for most of those, we don't think they matter. Um, you know, presidents have been reelected during major epidemics. Presidents have been reelected in landslides despite adversarial relationships with the media. Presidents have been reelected despite scandals. All of that stuff wasn't so important to us when we were trying to assess the outcome of the election. We were really just trying to focus on social mood and how it was manifesting in the markets and the economy. And in this case, we were able to see something that pollsters missed. And you'd think the pollsters would do a pretty good job. They're asking people, who are you going to vote for? We didn't ask anyone who they were going to vote for. We just looked at that trend in social mood and it was pretty informative. Yeah. And I think, you know, while there's limitations in both, the limitations in in polls, uh, there there are numerous, especially with the selection bias of who's answering those polls is another topic. But you know, such an interesting topic. Um, I wonder. It makes me think. If there was no, if this year didn't go the way it was, if there was no pandemic, which really threw a spanner in the works with the economy and they're causing a recession, one could argue that the incumbent Donald Trump would have looked at a very high likelihood of re-election, would you say, based on the data? We think if that social mood trend would have remained more positive, he was he was on track. We thought he was looking pretty good, frankly. Um, right. Back in December, uh, in the December 2019 issue of our monthly publication, we, we basically wrote, okay, if the market stays about where it was then, uh, he was at the time really close to being in that 87 and a half percent group. He wasn't quite there back then, but he was, he was, he was getting close. Yeah. But yeah, when you saw that change in social mood, my goodness. Yeah. It, it, it seemed to have dampened, uh, dampened uh, the reelection chances. That is fascinating, Matt. I did not anticipate this conversation to be this interesting and to spark so many curiosities within me. Thank you so much for being patient and, and being so uh, considerate with your thoughts and open-mindedness and explaining these theories um, to me and, and everybody listening. It's, uh, it's, there's a lot to take from if you can read between the lines. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, Alexander. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And I would, I'm, I'm, I would uh, before I finish, if Robert Prechter, 
ever watches this or you ever speak to him and it comes up because I tried to get him on first, then hey Matt, put a good put a good word in for me. No, okay. I'm joking. Okay. I'm joking. Um, but um, <laughs> it would be an honor and pleasure to speak to more people uh, alike to you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Matt. Well, thank you. It was very interesting. I enjoyed it as well. Watching, talking, or listening to talking chimps. Do you expect us to behave? Do you expect a chimp to behave in a zoo? And how are you going to expect us to behave? We're in a fucking zoo. It's called the fucking planet. Spinning around in a marble, hurling through space, wondering when the fuck we're going to get off this ride. Never. We're stuck. And we're in a Milky Way, which is in another universe, in another universe, in another universe, in another universe.